Welcome to the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. This is your host, Anna Varela. Our goal is to bring you insights from researchers working on a broad range of social, cultural, and scientific challenges. Our guest today is political science professor, Amy Steigerwald, who researches the role of women in politics, the federal judicial selection process, and other issues related to American politics. All very timely topics with a presidential election just weeks away. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Steigerwald. Thank you so much for having me. So as we approach election day, I'd like to talk a little bit about women as voters. You've noted that women in general vote at a higher rate than men. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes. One of the things that has happened, particularly in about the last three decades, is that there's been sort of two notable shifts in voting patterns between men and women. Um, the first one is that women vote more than men. And that is true um, across all demographics, across uh, race, age, etc. Women vote more and are more likely to turn out. Uh, that divide is actually highest when we look at uh, sort of white women versus white men, as well as black women versus black men. Um, But it's also clear across other groups as well. And then women also, we have seen, are increasingly more likely to vote for the Democratic candidate than the Republican candidate as compared to their male counterparts. And those are sort of the two biggest shifts that have really happened since about 1970, 1980. Okay, obviously women are an important uh, group of voters. Do we know why women vote at higher rates? There's a lot of different sort of thoughts about why that might be. Some of the reasons uh, might have to be with ability to get to the polls and a little more flexibility on that. Um, We see also that are in many ways more community oriented. So a lot of sort of research and social psychology that talks about sort of uh, different tendencies that people have. Women in general score much higher than men on like communitarian scores and Hmm. voting in many ways is very much a community-oriented activity rather than an individual benefit type activity. Mm -hmm. So pundits have said that this fall's elections could be decided by so-called suburban women. We also hear a lot of talk about the importance of African-American women as a group and growing focus on Hispanic and Latina voters. How should we think about women voters when women also belong to different ethnic groups, economic classes, and other other groups? That's a really excellent question. And I think it does get it to the fact that sometimes we want to reduce things down to sort of simple monolithic groups, and they're not. There's a lot of variations among women. Um, Definitely, for example, if we go back to 2016, we saw that white women were much more likely to were more likely to vote for Trump, whereas women of color disproportionately supported Hillary Clinton. So even in there, it's not correct to sort of talk about the woman's vote in that race because it definitely split. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're seeing that in other places right now. I think one thing that we can look at and that has perhaps again, that is really becoming clear in this particular 2020 election is that we're sort of seeing less actually variation among women than we've seen previously. Some of those sort of demographic differences, particularly racial differences, are a bit less. 
But I think it is a recognition that sometimes gender is not the defining factor that people look to uh, and where they are. I think some of what happens when people talk about, for example, the quote unquote suburban woman is that there's a lot of interest in the media in finding sort of a discernible group that seems like they might be swing voters and seeing mm -hmm. what is happening with them. Um, they used to be called soccer moms. Uh, now we're you know referring to more as suburban women. And I think one of the things that, particularly in 2020, that makes sort of the use of suburban women as a group so interesting is that the suburbs that a lot of times when we use that term and people think of suburban woman, they're probably thinking of a white woman who may have young children, potentially stays at home or has a part-time job. And that's actually not accurate anymore. Mm -hmm. That was the suburban woman back in the 1980s. Uh, the suburban woman today is just as likely to be a Latina or to be a black woman or to be Asian than mm -hmm. to be a white woman. She's just as likely to have a full-time job or even um, an advanced degree mm -hmm. and not just be sort of basic college educated. And so I think that that is what is difficult is that even within those terms, it changes. And so it is difficult. That said, there are some things that we can look at across the aggregate and ways in which the numbers are to some degree sort of so large that we don't have, that we don't have to spend as much time trying to disaggregate out uh, between the individual groups, but that's not always true. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little about women as candidates for public office and as office holders. You and fellow Georgia State political science professor Jeffrey Lazarus co-wrote a book on this called Gendered Vulnerability, How Women Work Harder to Stay in Office. What do you mean by gendered vulnerability? So we begin with the idea that, supported by a lot of existing research, that women in general face a difficult road to both winning election and winning re-election, even once they're an incumbent. Generally speaking, there can be impediments that are put in place for really any member of Congress. And a lot of times when we talk about vulnerability, we talk about it in the sense that a particular candidate had a close election the first time around. They only won by a couple of points that they come out of a district which we can see through public opinion polls and other things is very close. What we argue is that women, simply due to their gender, are vulnerable in that same way to challenges that come from being not in a quote-unquote safe seat, but it's not due to our normal electoral metrics of vulnerability. Instead, it's because they're a woman. They are women incumbents are more likely to face primary challengers, which means a challenger just from their own party. They're more likely to face strong general election challengers. They have a harder time raising money. They face sort of more skepticism, both from party elites as well as constituents. Mm -hmm. And they also have to contend with a media that many times will talk about them more in terms of their appearance than their policy positions. And mm -hmm. so the result is that 
women incumbents know that this is coming and they perceive it. They believe that they are more likely to run into challengers. They believe that they are more likely to have to convince the party, their voters, to put them back in office. And so they therefore act in ways to try to counteract that. And in particular, what that means is they respond to this gendered vulnerability by pursuing activities in office that are more targeted at constituents. So they introduce more bills and are more likely to vote for bills that reflect the interests of their districts. They're more likely to put staff in the district as opposed to up in Washington, D.C. And what's important about district staff is they're the ones who aid constituents in getting their Social Security checks, in doing things like signing up for the Paycheck Protection Act or ensuring that you are able to navigate the very expansive federal bureaucracy. And so in general, what gendered vulnerability means is that women respond to that vulnerability by, in many ways, trying to do everything they can to prove to the voters that they should send them back for another term. Mm-hmm. So that that then translates into how they present themselves when they run for re-election? Indeed, it does. And so when they're running for re-election, number one, they're going to use what they've done in office to be able to send a signal to their constituents, hey, I've done all these things for you. Mm -hmm. I've introduced these bills that reflect the district needs. I have helped secure funds to bring back to the district. I'm here more, right? They travel home more. They're much more likely to be on the ground, not just during the election season, but really all the time, not just sort of traveling in to do the elections and things like that. And they also then um, are sort of cognizant of the fact that they're going to have to try to stave off challengers. So they focus on having to do more fundraising so that they can try to show like, no, you don't want to challenge me, right? It's going to be really costly for you to challenge me. I've got these funds. And what's striking is that they're they're acting like this quote unquote vulnerable member, but they're not vulnerable in the normal sense, right? Mm -hmm. We normally talk about, again, vulnerability being that you had a close election, we are many times talking about female incumbents who won their last race with somewhere between 65 to 85% of the vote, mm. but they're still worried that they're going to have to stave off a primary challenger from their own party. Hmm. So w- would you argue that uh, women in uh, Congress are better legislators than their male counterparts? We do get to that in the end. Because it sounds like you're arguing that they're they're more aligned with what their districts want them to be doing. Yes. And so if what you desire in a member of Congress is a member of Congress who is going to most accurately reflect your interests and the interests of the district where you live, broadly speaking, Mm -hmm. women do that better. They focus on it more, they succeed more on that, and they do that better. So yes, in that sense, 
if that's what you're searching for and, and you think that a good representative is one who is there to um, be what we call sort of a delegate to reflect the views of those back home and to accurately ensure that those interests and needs are what are being communicated up in Washington, then yes, actually, that means that the data, the data shows that women are better representatives if that's what we're using as the metric. Okay. Well, let's step back for a moment. Here we are in, in 2020. And if we look at other democracies, especially in Europe, we see a much closer uh, to 50-50 male-female representation in their national governments. Uh, why are we in the United States so far out of balance? And we're, no, we're nowhere, clear, nowhere close to that 50-50. And why are we still having conversations about women are suitable for high office and trying to find ways to encourage women to run and, and kind of still wrestling with some of these basic questions. So some of it might be cultural and sort of trying to address the issues of what are the proper roles of men and women in society and in public life. And so I think that that shouldn't be understated. I do think, though, that one of the other things that really influences it in the United States is how our elections are structured and some things that make them different from, for example, European countries that aid these sort of advancement of women um, as well as people of color. So the first one is that we have what are known as candidate-centered elections. Parties in the United States, well, even though we sort of put everything in partisan terms, mm -hmm. the actual party organizations themselves are very weak. They mm -hmm. rely on candidates to put themselves forward, to decide that they want to run. Um, a lot of times the parties don't become involved until after the primary election. And so that means that you have to have someone who, number one, wants to run through a primary. Mm -hmm. raises money through the primary, is able to get out voters. And so it makes it a very individualistic and kind of personal choice to enter in. And the other side of that is research, for example, continually shows that women are much less likely to view themselves as qualified to run for office, sort of what they tick off as the requirements they are much less likely to see themselves hitting it. And even if they do actually check off all those boxes, they're still less likely to say, to think of themselves as being qualified. So in general, uh, for example, if we're focusing on recruitment of candidates, women have to be asked about four times, as many times compared to men before hmm. they will agree to run. So that's something there, because again, we don't have sort of that easy recruitment tool and it requires that. Second, because it is so candidate-centric, it means that you also have to focus on things like fundraising. Mm -hmm. Again, research shows that in general, fundraising by female candidates sort of lags behind fundraising by male candidates. Um, and there's sort of a number of different arguments that are put out there. Um, there's also potential impediments that are put in place by party elites which again, we have seen sort of not shifting as much over time and where that comes in. Um, another big issue is the fact that in a lot of European countries, they have a parliamentary system. Mm -hmm. And so in a parliamentary system, you don't run actually as an individual candidate. 
Rather, the party puts up a slate of people and you vote for a party and then whatever percentage that party wins, then that percent of seats from the party slate is adopted. Mm-hmm. In many ways, that makes it a lot easier to have a much more diverse coalition because you're not leaving it up to the voters to assess individual candidates. Instead, the voters, right, there's this sort of large slate and it gives a little more control to the parties and really the government itself to ensure that you're getting more diversity in the those who are actually going to serve in office. Um, a final thing, and we see this a bit less in Europe, but definitely in a lot of other, especially emerging democracies, are the explicit use of gender quotas, of saying that there must be a minimum percentage of women in the governments that are formed. And so, again, that is much easier to achieve if you're using a parliamentary system where you're not, as opposed to a system where you have sort of individual votes on individual candidates and individual districts. So would you hazard a guess for when we might reach some something closer to parity here in the United States based on, based on all of those things that you've outlined? Um, well, we potentially in 2021, we'll see about, right, in at the top numbers, we could see about a quarter of the U.S. Congress being women. So we're pretty far off from achieving parity, right? The numbers keep going up. But as you said, one of the issues is that we are having, in fact, very overt conversations about whether or not women should be running for office or whether or not Um, To use a very recent example, when there was discussion prior to uh, former Vice President Biden making his choice for a running mate, there became a discussion of whether or not certain women that were under consideration were, quote unquote, too ambitious. Yeah. That was presented, obviously, as a negative, the two. Mm -hmm. And the other part of it is, is that that's not something that we generally say about men. And so there is a way in which part of it is we also have to shift that conversation, right? We have to shift it away from the idea of can women do this? Should women be doing this? Are they perhaps violating some norm to be able to get there? Now, the positive, though, that I will say is that we're seeing bigger shifts at the state level, particularly in certain states. So, for example, Nevada is now a majority female legislature. They became that as of 2018, and they're the first one ever in the country. Um, And so that's sort of the other side of it. It is possible. And I think as we start to see more women, especially uh, elected into the legislative state houses and then working their way up, we will start to see more gender parity. The other issue that's not unimportant in this is that most of the gains that have been made, especially in terms of women in politics, but also when it comes to persons of color, has disproportionately been in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And there have, and part of that is that the party itself has definitely put a focus on, as well as party-aligned groups, in trying to recruit women, recruit uh, potential candidates of color, support them in their efforts. And we haven't seen similar moves on the Republican side. And so that does also then have impacts for our ability to reach parity, especially since we're a pretty 
you know, the, the country is split, you know, kind of down the middle, right? About half, you know, mm-hmm. there's approximately half people are Republican and half people are, are Democrat or, or Democrat or Republican leaning. But if most of the women candidates are only coming from one side, that's why we're then, it's going to make it even that harder to reach parity if we don't see sort of similar efforts coming from really both parties when we talk about party elites as well as the voters themselves. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you a few personal questions about your research. What led you to study political science? So I'm one of those weird people who is kind of, in many ways, not changed from where I started as a kid. Um, I told my parents when I was little that I was going to be a lawyer. And what I realized as time went on is that I really liked courts, but I didn't actually want to be a lawyer itself. I like studying courts. Mm. Similarly, um, I sort of focused on social studies. And when I got to college said, oh, well, the sort of continuation of social studies is political science and history. Mm-hmm. And I would I feel like of my research in many ways kind of looks at both of those. But in general, I chose political science because I really like questions about how institutions work and how institutional design and processes within institutions influence what people can do and where they come to and the types of outcomes that that produces. Um, I really like questions about, for example, Senate parliamentary procedure. I get super excited talking about things like that and talking about legislative behavior. And those questions are best answered in political science. Yeah. And what's the biggest misperception that people might have about your research? I think the biggest misperception is really one about research itself, and that's the idea that we go into questions that we don't go in that we go into the research with a thought of what the answer should be, as opposed to something that we are posing and testing, but we might be wrong. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the data leads us in a way that we really didn't expect whatsoever. It might lead to sort of a surprising finding, or it may be that the theory we've proposed is completely wrong. And when that happens, well, that's the whole point of doing the research. We have to accept that we're wrong. Um, This project is sort of like that. We were actually writing, um, Jeff and I started working, we wrote a paper all the way back in 2009 that looked at institutional differences between the House and Senate in -hmm. the distribution of earmarks. And we kept having this bizarre finding on, you know, a variable that we just sort of put in the model to control for people that women were getting way more earmarks than anybody else. And then we were like, wait, what is going on there? And let's try to figure this out. And it led us down. To those pork barrel pockets, right, that people talk about? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, there's certainly been things that I have published where the results were not what I was expecting whatsoever. So in this case, people assumed men brought home the money for their districts more so than women. And that that was wrong. Yes. Interesting. So then it led us to try to figure out were there other places that we saw sort of these gender differences and also what did they what did they look like? Right. What did they have in common if we did find them? Because part of it was right. A possible answer was there were not any gender differences in legislative behavior. Mm hmm. Right, that that wasn't something that really mattered. And 
this is one of those instances where on some level we were pretty surprised by what we found and also the strength of the findings, Mm -hmm. right, of how much difference, right, how much more legislative activity women were engaging in, how much more likely they were to have their interests match up to their their constituents and their districts than their male counterparts. And that wasn't really what we were necessarily expecting when we started out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you have a favorite book or movie that uh, that touches on your work? The problem is, is that I am pretty terrible on pop culture and things like that. Um, I love West Wing. I have a signed West Wing cast photo up in my office. And um, one of my favorite episodes ever actually was the one about two cats where they figured out a way to appoint two Supreme Court justices and sort of do that negotiation, which is uh, federal judicial selection is another thing that I look at a lot. So admittedly, I I do happen to like um, shows like that, even if they're not always entirely accurate. Mm -hmm. Mm Okay. Well, thank you for spending some time with us today, Dr. Steigerwald. This has been the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. You can follow us or let us know what you think on Twitter at GSUArtSci. And you can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Thank you for listening, and we hope you subscribe so you won't miss out on future episodes.